Hey everyone, welcome to Reformed Podmatics, hosted by the pastors of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. It's Pastor Mark Van Dyke and Pastor Zach Dewey, and this podcast exists to promote the vibrant, biblical, and historically informed face of Reformed theology, both in our context and beyond. Hey guys, welcome back. This is episode 12 on infant baptism. I'm Pastor Zach. And I'm Pastor Mark. And uh, as the title would suggest, we are going to be talking today about uh, what is a perennial question in the Reformed churches, uh, really for the past 500 years, uh, especially for those of us in the broader evangelical world whose churches coexist alongside other credo-baptist churches in our communities. And so, Uh, As pastors, we see many people who come into the Reformed community, Mm -hmm. and they are fans of lots of the theology, they like the rigor, they love to read Calvin or whoever it may be, Uh, but this whole issue of paedo-baptism is uh, a pretty big hurdle, it it seems to them, to get over. And so we see this a lot in our community, especially where there's uh, a few non-denominational big churches in the Mm -hmm. area that sort of, I don't know, set the tone, set the bar. default to... Yeah, and that sort of becomes like how people understand their Christian faith and their experience in church. And so uh, this is a pretty common question that that we're asked uh, from time to time, and it seems very different. It's it's interesting, really, in the history of the church, as we'll get into, uh, infant baptism was the common way. Mm -hmm. It was almost like always the case that, that, that babies were being baptized. And now, in our world, it seems to be the minority position. Yeah, I would say the default way of thinking in America, mostly because of individualism and our cultural value for personal sovereignty and autonomy, yeah. the default way of thinking about salvation is what's called Arminianism, which hmm. is the idea that I choose God, I choose to follow uh, Christ, he mm-hmm. gives me the invitation, and it's really up to me to accept that invitation. That's Arminianism, uh, maybe put a little bit too simply, uh, <laughs> to be fair. That's that's how many Americans would think of salvation. Sure. And then that translates right into what is called credo-baptism, which is believer's baptism. Um, this is the idea that somebody needs to display faith in Christ personally before they are baptized. And so Arminianism is the default mode, I would say, of American... um, Salvation theology. Soteriology, yep, salvation. And then, therefore, uh, credo-baptism, believer-baptism, would kind of be where where a lot of people would default to as well. Yeah, it's good to define terms like you were just doing, too. Credo-baptism, you can think of the word credo, reminds you of the word creed, which is... A belief. way of saying I believe yep. in Latin. So credo baptism means somebody who is able to believe and does believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's pedo baptism. Um, infant so baptism. That means yep. infant baptism. Yeah, um, or children's, yeah. Typically it's spelled P A E D O and then baptism. Yeah. And yeah. pedo baptism can also include small children who are before an age of accountability. Mm-hmm. I think of a situation I know of where a family joins a Christian Reformed church, 
and has a one-year-old and a three-year-old, and uh, we would suggest in our congregation that those children should be baptized. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, so this, this is a really interesting question, though, not just because it's fun to think about theologically mm-hmm. and it gets us into the, into the Word of God and we have to think about it from the Old and New Testaments, but it really does show that there's uh, a profound theological fault line. The more we dig into this, as you'll see, I think, um, it, and this doesn't show that there's an irreconcilable gap between credo-baptists and paedo-baptists in the sense that the two sides can't see one another as brethren in Christ, uh, but it does show that there's two very different ways of understanding Scripture's teaching mm-hmm. on important things such as the church. Who makes up the church? Who is the church composed of? Is it of believers only, or is it of uh, a broader covenant community, including those who do not yet have the ability to believe? Um, yeah, and along with that uh, really big overarching question, you have the relation between the Old and New Testaments. Mm-hmm. I would say... Um, the question Definitely. of Christian identity and who is in the church is a is a pretty big one, obviously. Mm-hmm. But then also, and related to that, the question of how the Old and New Testaments relate to one another is um, if one has a more separate view of the, the covenants, then mm. um, often they would lean in a more credo-baptist direction. Um, but as Reformed people, we, we greatly value the continuity between hmm. Old and New Testaments, yeah. um, not just in the sense that there's prophecy in the Old Testament that's fulfilled in the New Testament, but believing that God is the same, and that making disciples looks actually very much the same from Old and New Testaments as well. Yeah, yeah. so that, it also touches on, on that very important question. What does Christian discipleship look like? Mm-hmm. Um, do we disciple young toddlers who can't really understand all the the important things about the gospel, the basics of the gospel, uh, maybe a two-year-old just learning to talk, how do we disciple them in Christ? Or do we just sort of see them as a viper in diapers, basically, as I've <laughs> heard it said? And so it touches on personhood, it touches on God's relationship to His people and His mm-hmm. covenants, as Mark was saying, and the, the normative way for growth as a Christian. Uh, and so... It, yeah. It's a very important thing, infant baptism, um, or the debate over infant baptism, because mm-hmm. it, it really does open up a lot of vistas into seeing different theological doctrines and uh, important things about the Christian life. Yeah, and I, I do want to reiterate that point about one's view of the Old Testament, and I think that's yeah. actually a really good place to start For with sure. this conversation, because I get the sense that in... Many evangelical churches, the Old Testament, I would say, is for probably three things. Hmm. It is the law, so the Ten Commandments. So ethics. Yep. It is um, setting the stage for the coming of Christ, so prophecy would be a big deal. And then the Psalms would fit in there as well, of course, in many evangelical minds as um, beautiful representations of worship of the living God. And so I would say generally most Old Testament attitudes, you'd probably have some stories in there and some... Oh, yeah, moral uh, stories. You know, some the patriarchs, right? So mm-hmm. maybe add to that the 
witness of the patriarchs as Hebrews 11 points back to these heroes of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and But it's it's quite piecemeal, I, I say, is maybe the point that I'm trying to make, that there's this sense that it's about the law, and uh, many people would even say in the evangelical church wrongly, well, the Old Testament was about the law and the New Testament is about grace. And <laughs> mm-hmm. um, the Old Testament was sort of setting the stage yeah. And the New Testament is about where things really happen. <laughs> I, I think that if people yeah, were going to be honest, or the way that, that ministers preach the Old Testament and the New, and, you know, it, for hmm. example, how they might preach Job, it's like, well, they just can't wait to get to, I know that my Redeemer lives, um, and I know that um, that these eyes will, will see the living God, right? It's sort of a reference to the resurrection. Mm-hmm. And they just kind of want to get there, and that's really a paradigm for how the whole Old Testament is understood by many evangelical people. Like, let's just get to the good stuff where Jesus comes onto the scene. Hmm. And I would agree, the New Testament, the New Covenant, according to Hebrews, is better, but Mm -hmm. I don't think that that means that we can uh, easily dismiss the standards and the Mm -hmm. theology of the Old Testament. Yeah, this this reminds me of a time, one of my old jobs back in seminary, actually. I came home for summer was working in a cold storage and one of the guys I was working with discovered that I was a seminarian and wanted to go into ministry and he asked me well prove it like recite a bible verse for me <laughs> and so it had just happened that that semester one of my uh, one of my um, professors assigned the task of memorizing and he gave different different passages, and so one of them was Romans 8, 1 through 12, and so that's what I had memorized. And so I start to, I, I break into it, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he immediately stops me and says, oh, so you're a New Testament Christian. Oh, wow. Not an Old Testament Christian. And I was oh, like, what oh, do you mean? Like, they're, they're, that's the same Bible, it's the same faith. And so that mm. that right there just goes to show the sort of popular level understanding of of yeah, what you were saying, the Old Testament uh, being all about God's law and some moral stories of these different leaders, and then the New Testament is where the good stuff happens. Yeah, it's almost Old Testament as intro and the New Testament as yeah. the real story. And so then we can just sort of you know do away with it. And this is what yeah. what Andy Stanley right said oh, about goodness. unhitching yeah. from the Old Testament. Yeah, uh, we can sort of you know avoid it now or not really concern ourselves too much about it. Well, well, and that um, approach to the Old Testament, that even that word that he used, we need to unhitch from the Old Testament. <laughs> it, not a good it, choice it of words. It is such a profound representation of um, this dispensational view that mm-hmm. that that dispensation, that time period is done, mm-hmm. and now we're in this one, and it's so different that we can unhitch from it and that would be good for us to do. So anyways, getting back to the more pointed topic of infant baptism, I know, (laughs) uh, Zach, you grew up in a credo Baptist setting. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, what what would be some arguments that helped to compel you towards the, or push you towards the the, the paedo-Baptist view? Yeah, so as Mark said, I did grow up in a Baptist church, um, which ironically meant that I didn't get baptized at that church because I was never really sure. Mm. So baptism was never pushed on me or 
or pressured for me to do, but it was something that I always sort of thought, you know, like when I'm serious in my faith, I'll get to baptism. And so I wasn't baptized until the age of 20 when I was then attending a different church. Um, and so as I got into seminary, this became a really big question for me, which which side of the divide do I want to step onto? And it was four arguments that for me were really compelling and remain so. Uh, and so we can sort of walk through mm-hmm. each of these. And I think uh, this will be a helpful way for sort of working through the whole idea of infant baptism. But the first one is the argument of silence or the argument from silence. And so the the idea here is that, well, in the New Testament, there's nothing that says we should baptize babies. So therefore, we shouldn't do it. That's often how a lot of people read the mm-hmm. New Testament, or they see no examples where it's explicitly clear that babies are being baptized. But when you look at the covenantal landscape of the Old Testament, it always included children as being legitimate members of God's chosen people, Israel. And so we can see this right from the very beginning, for example, in Genesis, in chapter 17, uh, where God says to Abraham, when making that covenant, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who was eight days old among you shall be circumcised. And then in Exodus 20, uh, in the Ten Commandments, the children are spoken to as though they belong mm-hmm. in the covenant. Mm-hmm. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land of the Lord your God is giving you. And so, therefore, in the New Testament, I think if infants were going to be excluded from the covenant community due to their supposed inability to have faith, we ought to expect explicit teaching from the apostles, I think, that infants were to no longer be recipients of the covenant sign and seal. Mm. Uh, and so it's interesting that if you look at the silence of it, you would expect, yeah, the apostles to say something about not baptizing babies, whereas in the former covenant, they were seen as being a part of the community. Uh, and so if they were no longer to be regarded as a part of God's covenant people, we would expect some teaching clarifying this point for us. Yeah, and this, again, is where our American individualism gets in the way a lot because yes. we are raised in the United States to separate ourselves so much um, ontologically mm-hmm. from our parents, whereas in Asian culture, in Middle yeah. Eastern culture, um, and, and those two spring to mind right away, your identity is totally wrapped up in your family. Mm-hmm. And um, that sometimes that's for worse, and yeah. sometimes it can be... We're not be, arguing that we should become yeah, more like Asian cultures. Or, or just the, this idea that... A sort of worship of the family. Sure, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and this is, that is the culture from which Scripture um, is written. It, it is in this mentality of family togetherness, family identity... Mm-hmm. Um, family unit. You have that in honor your father and mother, and that's not just a punctiliar command. It's not like a nice little. You yeah, should do it's, this. It's not just a way to live that will help you get along with your parents. It is right. like a, a deep sacred honor for your parents who brought you into the world, who have nourished yeah. you, and who have cared for you, uh, your your body and your soul. And and so honor them deeply. Mm-hmm. That that's not just a, a one thing you do. That's a whole mentality of living to uh, 
certainly honor God above everything, but also to honor parents in a very deep and profound way because they're your family. And, and in some worldly sense, that's sort of where your identity is rooted. Yeah. There's a reason it's in the Ten Commandments. It's not the ten nice things to, to, to keep in mind. It is the Ten Commandments. It's in the, you could think of it as the top ten. If it's in the top ten, it must be very significant. Yeah. The idea that, that the family is to be a unit and is to uh, honor parents, and and the parents are supposed to train and raise their children well and yeah, the Shema. teach them. Yeah, and, and we could think of other commandments in the same kind of way, too, where you would have, uh, do not commit adultery isn't just like, don't go and have sexual relations with somebody who's not your wife. It's a mentality of holding marriage as a sacred bond between a man and a woman. Yeah. Um, do not bear false witness is not just don't say a lie in court, but it's be a utterly, profoundly truthful person all the time. Yeah, do not contribute to society's lack of trust yeah. and breakdown. And so, there's no trust in institutions or things. And we, society breaks down. We, we put honor thy father and mother into that too, and then all of a sudden it's not just Mother's Day and Father's Day. <laughs> Um, and it's not just don't say bad things about your parents and insult them when they're not around. It's live with deep honor for those who the Lord has entrusted you to um, so that those who follow after you also can honor and and, and think rightly and, and carefully yeah. about you. And so the family, I think, is uh, totally it, it's been so separated and so pulled apart by our culture that we often lack the, a biblical understanding of what God is doing in a family. And again, this really does set the stage for understanding infant baptism rightly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've drunk very deeply <laughs> at the well of self-definition. Right? Yes. That's our whole culture, Yeah, is define who you are. You determine who you are. You can self-actualize, self-realize, and nobody can tell you who you are except your parents did give you a name, but you can change that too. Sure. Uh, and you can even so, divorce from your parents, like yeah. I think Lindsay Lohan did that or something. Yeah, like that. so in our world, th- th- this idea of you proclaiming who you are makes it very easy to see how baptism, or ba- the Baptist view, or the credo-Baptist mm-hmm. view is as popular as it is. Yeah. But going back to this argument from silence in the New Testament, uh, it, it is interesting then, this whole idea of household baptisms, which... Uh, many of you maybe have read about in the book of Acts, maybe also in 1 Corinthians 1. But there are examples of whole households being baptized. Now, some of you who may hold to credo-baptism will immediately jump to say, well, it doesn't say any babies were included in these Mm -hmm. households. But I do think it's interesting that the apostles were baptizing whole households, and they were telling whole households to repent and believe not knowing exactly who was in these households, and they weren't mm-hmm. adding any sort of fine print saying, repent and believe and get baptized, your whole household, except infants uh, who cannot believe. Mm-hmm. Um, they were pretty comfortable in telling, for example, the, the jail, jailer in, in Philippi um, uh, in Acts 16, you should be baptized, you and your whole, your whole family. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't seem to have any sort of awkwardness in there. Um, and their message here. Yeah, and that is one of the big arguments in favor of infant baptism. And we have to recognize, though, that it's not the absolute strongest argument in favor sure, of the position. Yeah. It's, I would say, supportive of the practice, practice of infinite, ba- infinite, infinite, <laughs> of infant 
baptism, uh, but it is not sort of the defeater of the Credo Baptist sure. position. Um, There's no slam dunk argument. Yeah. There's just not. Yeah. And uh, so you're right. Those households, it's the household of Lydia. It's the household of Cornelius, who believes. Uh-huh. And it's the household of the Philippian jailer. And in each case, when the the family leader uh, becomes is, is born again and is dis, um, showing faith in Christ, then the family comes into, you might say, the new territory with them. Mm-hmm. I've, I've once heard the, the statement uh, using an illustration of immigration. A parent who has small children, or really who has any children, who are under their care and authority, um, when immigrating to a new country, will not leave their children behind, but will say, we're going to all go into this new country together and be citizens of this new country as mm-hmm. a family. And so... I've heard that used to defend the practice of infant baptism, saying, "Mom and Dad are Christians. We are um, parts of the a part of the kingdom of God, hmm. and our family is a Christian a, family. a Christian family that that God has that God is going to bless through His means of grace." Yeah, we see a little hint of this too in First Corinthians seven, where we see Paul uh, mention that the child of a believing parent is considered holy. Hmm. Interesting, right? That regardless of whether or not this child can be said mm-hmm. to believe, mm-hmm. they're considered on, and in some objective sense before God, holy. This doesn't mean that this kid is righteous and is going to be saved, and that the day of judgment they will stand before God yeah. and say, I believe in Christ and his righteousness covers me. But it does suggest that there is a placement in the covenant community here as well. Yeah, I think the term also is sanctified. They're sanctified by through the faith yeah. of, of in that case, the mother in that example. Yeah, right? which is... And the husband also is, actually. Yes. Even though he may not be a believer yeah. in the important salvific sense. Right, and so there's a blessing again, the centrality of the family and yeah. seeing the family as this essential core unit of uh, identity and understanding um, that when one person is a believer in Christ, is born again, there is a leavening effect through the family, and certainly God is blessing that family through this person who believes. Yeah, it's never a guarantee of anything, but it is definitely an objective good for them spiritually. And there's a lot of biblical evidence of that. And then, yeah, one final thing, uh, thinking about the biblical argument, I guess, for baptism or for infant baptism. If you, if you, if infants were included, let's think in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, so the covenants of Abraham and Moses and David and so on, in the covenant of grace, and then all of a sudden in the New Testament, with under the New Covenant, they are re- removed from the covenant people. Uh, this would be suggestive of a very big problem for mm-hmm. first century Jewish converts to Christianity following Jesus. Their kids were formerly included in the covenant people, but now are no longer to be to be included. So one uh, favorite theologian of mine, Robert Letham, says this, if infants were debarred from the covenant sign in the New Testament after receiving it in the Old Testament with circumcision, Pentecost would have been the greatest occasion of mass excommunication in history. So the day of Pentecost would have meant the removal of all of these covenant children. Uh, and 
that that would not fit well with Hebrews 8 that tells us the new covenant is a better covenant mm-hmm. that would feel very much to those parents like it was a worse covenant. Yeah, and you also have in Colossians 2 the linkage between circumcision and um, the work of Christ in baptism as well. And that Colossians yeah. 2 verses 11 and 12 very important. Is, is the core verse of that supports most directly the practice mm-hmm. of infant baptism, where you have, Agreed. it says, in Christ you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. And so huh. it's really important to understand that text, and it, it could seem... Uh, to support the credo baptist position where it says you're buried with him in baptism and raised with him through faith um, but that could also be understood from the pedo baptist perspective to say you're buried with him in baptism and then you will be raised in faith and and you will be raised by Christ through uh, the faith that he will we pray give to you mm-hmm. so so in connecting the you could say the old Testament or Old Covenant uh, sacrament, in a sense you could call it that, of circumcision that connects that to baptism. And so the mm-hmm. simple logic, maybe a credo-baptist would say it's oversimplified, is that, well, if the first one can be applied to children, that the second one can also be applied to children. Yep. Uh, so that those are some convincing arguments straight out of Scripture. Um, there are other compelling arguments that uh, that were helpful to me, and the, the next one would really have been the nature of baptism. What is baptism? Yeah. Um, not so much who does baptism need to be applied to, children or believers only, uh, but what is it? What is going on in baptism? It's often thought that baptism is merely an outward symbol of an inward reality, and that nothing really is actually caused or is going on in the administration of the sacrament or the ordinance. And so in such a view, baptism is primarily seen to be an act that we do in Mm -hmm. proclaiming or declaring publicly our faith. So it's often just a way of getting up in front of people, showing to the church community around you, and in effect to the whole world, that you are marking yourself off as a new person in Christ. Uh, and so, and so yeah, we might call that the symbolic view of baptism. Yeah, it's yeah. merely just a symbol, and it's really a statement of you towards God and to others. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the reformed position, and really the magisterial Protestant position, is that baptism is primarily an act done by God to you, mm-hmm. and that became very clear to me. Um, and so, one example of this would be. Uh, Romans 4, 9, Paul is talking about Abraham and circumcision there in that chapter. And so the verse says this, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The simple question to ask is, who's active and who is passive here? Hmm. Abraham receives the sign as a seal from God, right, that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So there is a receptive act that Abraham is doing, mm-hmm. but it is also the act of God. Um, through the act of circumcision, God seals Abraham, uh, and in effect, those 
who also undergo circumcision into the covenant community. So this is why in the Belgic Confession, in Article 34, our own confession, it says this, By baptism we are received into God's church and set apart from all other people and alien religions, that way that we may be or may wholly belong to him whose mark and sign we bear. And then it says, very interestingly, baptism witnesses to us that God, being our gracious Father, will be our God forever. And so more than merely being something we do, it is something that God does to us. And when we are baptized, we are marked by God. Mm. And we are, uh, in effect, And when when we're spiritually baptized, we are made new. You're set apart, yeah. And this is really a theology of sacraments. And so a sacrament is something that God does. It is a means of grace. It shows grace to the people of God. And I think it's really helpful to compare it a little bit to communion, where if you know the three main understandings of communion, you have the symbolic view that it's just just a remembrance of Jesus' death, and it builds our faith by enacting, uh, maybe even reenacting the Lord's Supper, and we remember what Jesus did when he died on the cross. They mm-hmm. on the other end of the spectrum, you would have transubstantiation, where um, in the Catholic view, it is believed that to eat the bread and to drink the wine is to eat the body and blood of Christ, which will be transubstantiated even physically into your own body. Mm-hmm. And in the middle is that reformed view that there is a spiritual blessing happening at the communion table. Um, it is neither just symbolic, but but neither is it uh, the transubstantiated body of Christ, and yeah, so it's not totally physical, right? And and we could use that sort of correlate that to baptism and mm-hmm. say it's neither just symbolic, but but it is not um, baptismal regeneration either, and that's. Baptismal regeneration is the idea that mm-hmm. at the moment of baptism, when the water is placed on your head, you are regenerate. You will be born again. You are yeah. uh, You're basically placed into God's elect, yeah. and you cannot fall away. And so, interestingly, that is also the view of Catholics and many Lutherans, is this concept of yeah. baptismal regeneration. Though they would say you you can fall away, but... Yeah. Sure, yeah, there's that too. Um, but... In the Reformed view, again, we fall more in the middle where something profound and spiritual is happening for the believer that Mm -hmm. God is blessing, or or, sorry, for the recipient of baptism, um, that God is is blessing that person in a mysterious and powerful way with with his spirit, with uh, his promises, with his sign and seal um, that is kind of referred to in... Romans 4, verse 9 as well. Yeah, and in the Reformed tradition, this is clarified by the distinction between grace and faith. We would say that God's grace precedes our faith. Mm. And so mm-hmm. this is highlighted in the baptizing of an infant mm-hmm. who, yes, cannot have faith in the sense that we typically think of it, and God's grace is given to them initially before that, prior to that. And so it highlights God's grace hmm. yeah. in that way. Yeah, and so if, if one has 
more of a reformed view of baptism itself, then infant baptism will seem to make yeah, more it, sense. It I falls say. into place a yep. little easier. Right. And so the next big one, and I'll let you sort of take it away, because I know you've done some research on this, but uh, the witness of history, just for me, knowing that, okay, for most of Christian mm-hmm. history, baptizing babies has been commonly accepted as the right practice. So that was huge for me. Yeah, and again, it is a good argument, um, not the absolute foundational argument, which Mm -hmm. we have to go to the Scriptures for. However, um, Zach is absolutely right that throughout history, the majority of believers, even still today, the majority of believers throughout (laughs) the world Mm -hmm. are um, practicing paedo-baptism. So in the early church, uh, there were several leaders who argued strenuously in favor of paedo-baptism. Um, a lot of what I'm hmm. going to say is based on a chapter by Peter Lightheart from a book that he was a contributor to called The Case for Covenantal Infant Baptism. And if somebody is really interested in learning more about this topic, that is yeah. a treasure trove of uh, material um, It goes through the Reformed understanding, the pastoral understanding of baptism, and now in this case, the historical support for infant baptism. Hmm. And uh, we'll put the uh, a link to the book in the description of, of this podcast so that somebody could read more about this if they'd like to. But anyways, Peter Lightheart goes through some early church leaders. Tertullian uh, was born in the year 160, and so he lived about 150 years after Jesus and uh, or after Jesus was doing his ministry. And he gives the first undisputed reference to infant baptism in church history, warning hmm. uh, warning about it because he thought that actually that that baptism was um, a bit unnecessary. And so um, he he shows that infant baptism is happening, um, and that that hmm. gives evidence to it. Yeah, uh, so, Origen, who comes along right after Tertullian, he claims that infant baptism was a teaching that was actually handed down by the apostles. And (laughs) that actually carries a lot of weight because he didn't live all that long after the apostles. Um, It's conceivable to think that some apostles would have lived well into the year, say, uh, 80 or 90, if they would have been very old. Mm -hmm. Um, And... This is he was born in 185 origin, and so he was probably only about three or four generations removed from the apostles themselves. And he claimed that infant baptism was a teaching handed down by them. And Cyprian comes later. He argued strenuously in favor of pedo baptism, and by the time of Augustine in the fifth century, the practice of infant baptism was quite well established. And Augustine takes a little bit more of a philosophical approach to defending infant baptism. His question that he wanted to answer was, do infants need to be saved? Um, is there such a thing as original sin? Are they born as a clean slate? Are they born in sin? Yeah, marred um, by sin. Yeah, and, and marred by sin, uh, in, uh, impacted by uh, this doctrine of original sin, this reality of it, Mm -hmm. and his answer was a definitive yes, and so therefore infants should be baptized, Um, the sacrament should be applied to them for the forgiveness of sins. Hmm. And um, it's sort of the washing of their original sin. 
and their entrance into the family of God. And so um, I would say these many of these early church fathers really do tend to make more philosophical arguments in favor of infant baptism than scriptural arguments. So that should be That's noted. Clear. Yeah. Um, and Full disclosure. <laughs> there is also the practice of credo baptism in the early church as well. This mm-hmm. is a this is a debate in the early church yeah. already, just in the same way that circumcision was a debate in the New Testament time and yeah, beyond. In the apostolic um, period. It, it's very related, actually, that baptism was also a hotly debated topic. Um, however, once Augustine comes along, it seems quite settled uh, for really into the Reformation era, era mm. through his convincing argument and his veneration by the Catholic Church. So a lot during that time, there are liturgies that have uh, been found where it seems as though the baptizee is expressing faith, and then that is a de facto support of something like credo-baptism. However, we would have those liturgies in our own church, as mm-hmm. I'm going to baptize some believers in uh, yeah. about three weeks, and then the following Sunday I'm going to baptize an infant. So if, if only the liturgy that exists is the one where I baptize um, the members of the McMurray family, then and the one for the Goslinga baby doesn't uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> doesn't exist, um, doesn't, isn't handed down, then it would seem like we're a credo-baptist church. Yeah, that's so, true. 5,000 years from now, somebody's excavating <laughs> our church property and finds tattered papers of sure. the right for adult baptism. Or that would they would think, oh, they only did adult baptisms. Well, right. no, not necessarily. Exactly, and so the fact that we do does not mean that we exclusively do. Right now, um, of course, after Augustine, the the matter is largely settled in the Catholic Church, and then about a thousand years later comes the Reformation, where the Anabaptist movement uh, really sweeps through Europe and has continued to to grow, um, mm-hmm. maybe giving a little bit of context to this in our own day, um, those who would be Pentecostal, those who obviously are called Baptist, those who are Mennonite, um, yeah. to my knowledge, all Methodists would be Credo-Baptist. Nope, Methodists are... Are there some... Uh, they baptize are there babies. Okay. Following in the Anglican way, sort of, of Wesley, oh. they baptize babies. Okay. Um yeah, but the Methodists that I've known would be more Credo Baptist, but hmm. um, yeah, I don't know about Lloyd Jones. Yeah, he Does, referred to himself as a Calvinistic Methodist, and so, so. <laughs> I don't know if that means he baptized babies or not. I, I no, he know. was he was Credo Baptist. Okay, yeah. So there you go, a Methodist then, in some way, who was a Credo Baptist. But the Methodists I knew, being at a formerly UMC church, was mm. was they baptized babies. Okay, and so yeah, you could see there even. I would even say sometimes within churches of a denomination, like I'm aware of some churches in the Reformed Church in America, um, one that my mm-hmm. parents were a member of in Indianapolis, they would sort of leave it up to each family. Mm. And um, even even in that church, there was an elder of that church who had small children who were not baptized. And mm. I'd, I'd say that's often how non-denominational churches can kind of go. Yeah. Like if it's something that people really want, they may go for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally, non-denominational churches would be credo-baptist. And so the pedo-baptist list would include, obviously, Catholic, Lutheran, Presbyterian, 
Anglican um, Reformed, Continental Reformed, like our own congregational congregational churches, churches. Um, United Church of Christ. Um, would, although yeah. uh, they've got many other ideas. Their orthodoxy that, is questionable. <laughs> that, are, that are not so helpful. So um, that that maybe helps people understand the, understand the landscape a yeah. little bit of this. And that splintering out into lots of different denominations really did occur in the 1500s where um, uh, people like Menno Simons and uh, many in the Anabaptist movement started yeah. to really push this idea that that baptism is only for believers. Yeah. And that's that eventually would become the default, as we've said, the default mm-hmm. position of American Christianity as it hit the frontier and was expanding west. Yeah. And there was a lot of re- revivals. This is especially in the Second Great Awakening. Uh, there was, it became much more common to baptize adults only because you would have these very em- extremely emotional revival sort of situations, the tent camps, people coming forward uh, many times very emotionally, crying, mm-hmm. uh, coming to the altar or whatever they would have called it. Um, and then, yeah, they would get baptized shortly thereafter. Sure. And it was just, it was seen as a way of marking out yourself. And so this has been sort of put into the bloodstream of American Christianity, mm-hmm. and it's just seen as the normal thing to do. And now, today... Pedo baptism just seems very strange mm-hmm. and weird, even to people who've grown up in churches that historically have practiced it. Yeah, there's a great scene in one of my favorite movies, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, of a baptism happening after a revival. And one of the characters in the movie, one of the main characters who was a thief and he was kind of a guy with a soft heart, he just decides, I'm going to go for it. And he comes out of the water and it's actually a a, a very hilarious scene because he's just like, my sins are washed away now. And then they just kind of go the rest of their way throughout the rest of the movie with nary a mention of Christ and following him. And it was this second great awakening experience mm-hmm. that he got when he went and cut in line in front <laughs> of all the, the, um, the people in their white robes. And so um, that's a caricature, of course, of the second great awakening, although probably one that's not all that far from reality. Yeah, yeah. So that's sort of the historical lens to look at. Um, it's it's interesting, also going back to the uh, early church. There were there were, as Mark was saying, there are examples of people putting off baptism until much later on in life, often until mm. the very end. Mm. And the reason for this, like Constantine, the Emperor Constantine, is an example of this. The idea was that if baptism is what washes away my sins, then I want to make sure all my sins in life are washed away. <laughs> So whatever happens after my baptism doesn't count against me. And so it was a, there was this desire to push it off as far as you could, uh, to sort of tempt fate a little bit and, and try, mm. to, try to get all your sins washed Keep away. Keep a priest nearby, um, you know, at all times. Um, and yeah. uh, maybe one thing that we could get into, too, is the Reformed Confessions that mm. is sort of under the umbrella of this historical argument that in... The Reformation era, confessions started to be developed, and of course the Reformed confessions would give strong support for the practice of paedo-baptism, and mm-hmm. in those confessions that would include the Second Helvetic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, and the Westminster um, uh, Catechisms, they would they all have kind of two themes to make the argument for paedo-baptism. The first theme is the continuity between Old and New Testament, um, using a lot of language of 
circumcision um, in the Old Testament being the sign of the covenant, baptism in the New Testament being the sign of the covenant that God makes us with us through Christ. And then the second theme through these catechisms that one would find is the distinction of the children of believers versus unbelievers. And hmm. we heard that already in the Belgic Confession through what Zach read earlier, where uh, yeah. the and th- this is this is also Im- important, and it's one that again in our individualistic culture is not valued very much. But to say this child is born into this family is is to say that see see mom and dad are following Christ and they're living for Him and they're studying the Word and they're receiving the means of grace. And mm-hmm. now we have seen that God has placed a baby in this family yeah. and our belief is that God has done this to show his grace, his love, to share his truth with this child. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's an ordained placement of God. Mm-hmm. Um, the baby that I'll baptize in a few weeks is named Evelyn Goslinga. So Evelyn is placed in Jordan and Rachel's family because the Lord wants her to know him. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, again, that yeah. that's a big theme in the catech in the catechism in the Belgic Confession yeah. and in our Reformed theology. Yeah, there's a sort of idea, the idea of proximity to mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. to the gospel. Um, that's part of what it means to be in the covenant community is that you get to grow up in a household where you are going to be raised to know Christ. Whether or not at the end of your life you do know Christ in a saving way is beside the point. But the idea is that you have objectively been blessed by God because you're growing up in not only a Christian household, but a Christian church, and mm-hmm. you're going to be hearing the gospel, and you're going to be uh, yeah, exposed raised up. to it, essentially. Right. And and that that really corrects one of the misunderstandings of infant baptism, that it's a bit of a crapshoot. Yeah. That like, well... Since there's a new baby born in our church, we'll we'll just baptize this one and hardly give a second thought to whether mom and dad are communi- communicant members in good standing. Yeah. And um, that controversy has certainly existed throughout church history, where people thought they would their children would automatically, regardless of their own life and their own faith, be afforded the gift of baptism. You probably see this a lot in the Catholic Church, I'm guessing, and one of the most disturbing uh, ways uh, uh, that I've ever seen baptism portrayed is in the end of the Godfather movie, of course, (laughs) right, where um, Dad has instructed for all these murders to happen on the very same day that their own son is being baptized, and you have him saying, I renounce Satan, I renounce Satan, meanwhile doing very much the work of Satan yeah. as a mafia boss. And so uh, that, of course, is, is a, again, a very extreme example, but um, it does show to me the need for examining the faith of parents, meeting regularly, um, mm-hmm. understanding where parents are at, so that we can know that the Lord's blessing is upon this child as he or she will be raised up to know what love is, to know what truth is, to know the Word of God. Um, we can be confident that God's Spirit will bless this child because God has so richly blessed his or her parents already mm-hmm. with hearts that are set on him. Yeah, we don't just want to baptize babies willy-nilly. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we do it knowing that they're going to be raised in a home 
of parents that are going to be seeking their spiritual blessing mm-hmm. um, at all times and be working towards that, praying towards that, catechizing their children, um, having conversations with them about Christ constantly. Uh, and so if yeah. there wasn't un- if there wasn't believing parents, we're not baptizing anyone. Yeah. We're not just saying, let's just baptize all the babies, just line them up and we'll splash some water on and them. And I think that's the perception <laughs> from some credo-baptists that, well, a baby was born and so they'll be baptized. And, mm-hmm. and that gets to that crapshoot mentality of uh, pay no attention to the faith of the parents. We're just going to baptize this yeah, baby and no. hope it takes, you yeah. know. And that's not what we're doing. Yeah, and while they could say that there's a, it's all a crapshoot, we could also push that back on mm. the credo-baptist position and say, look, like elders at a credo-baptist church may try to discern whether or not the faith of this young person, this teenager or whatever, is legitimate faith. But at the end of the day, that kid may, for all they can tell, look very clearly like a Christian mm-hmm. 10, 20 years later, not be a Christian anymore. Um, will have fallen away in in that sense. Yeah, and so in in that example, I think the the point is that uh, baptism is mysterious for the Pado Baptist, but also for the Credo Baptist as well. Um, often yeah, it's more often it's more portrayed as the Credo Baptist has things pretty much set in order, and we know exactly that this person is saved, and so they're baptized, yeah. which. I would agree with you is is not always exactly true, mm-hmm. um, and and then the the implication then could be that the Pado Baptist is more of that. Oh, that's just so mysterious. But I would say it's actually um, pretty straightforward in terms of the Lord placing this child in a home with mom and a dad who are seeking after Him, and we can see they're going to raise mm-hmm. this little one up into the way of Christ. And so it's not just a random act of of uh, God and you know we just hope that it, it looks good in the end yeah um, it there is mystery in it but there's also intentionality in it from God's perspective I would say yeah, that's and why it's very clear to us we have parents promise to and and the church as well right, who's right. who's participating in the baptism liturgy uh, make promises covenantal promises to be uh, looking out for the that child child's uh, spiritual benefit. So a fourth and final point, uh, it's simple, but it's, uh, in my opinion, it's illustrative of a fundamental flaw, I, w- I think, in the credo-baptist position. It's this, if babies cannot be baptized because they lack the cognitive faculties necessary for having a saving faith in Christ, then it follows that mentally disabled persons must also be refused baptism on account of their inability to understand the gospel and profess faith. And so if it's if what's required is a fully functioning or at least mostly functioning brain that can understand the basic tenets of the gospel and have faith, then what do we do with with mentally disabled people, people who are intellectually challenged? Mm-hmm. Um, some some of them very very much so. Uh, there's a close uh, I would say family member of mine uh, who is a year younger than myself, so he would be 29 now. And he has the cognitive capabilities of a pretty newly born child. Mm. Uh, cannot talk, cannot feed himself, uh, cannot walk. Um, his body is very obviously very small. Uh, mm. He's never been able to to grow muscles very well and so on. What do we do with a child like this? Can we not consider this person as part of God's people? 
uh, his parents are believers. Hmm. Um, and so what do we do with this? What do we, what do we do with, with, with people like this who are made in the image of God? Can we say that because they don't have a brain that functions in the same way as everyone else, that they are not able to be fully included in the covenant community? This becomes a very big problem. Um, if what's needed is a brain to be a self, to be a saved Christian, a uh, brain that works fully, just like everyone else's, then you have problems. I think that you run mm-hmm. into. Uh, I think that the Pado Baptist position allows very well to say intellectually disabled persons are fully included in the covenant community. Yeah, and we would even go a little further and say it is God's special blessing to this child to be born in that family so that he would be uh, blessed through the the means of grace, um, Mm -hmm. that is, the preaching of the word and the sacraments. And um, that's where it's a good hinge point, I think, in our conversation because it really goes to show the beauty and the hope of the Pado baptist position, that God reaches into the life of um, an infant who can't understand his nature, but gives a very real blessing to that infant or that, uh, that person with a cognitive disability, and, or just <laughs> an adult also, equally, uh, who mm-hmm. is walking away in, in their sin. Um, in some ways, it seems almost more miraculous that God would change the heart of a sinner than that God would give a blessing, a spiritual blessing to an infant, Hmm. um, Mm -hmm. because we can be so dead set against God like the Apostle Paul was before he was called, and that was a miraculous call back to him. Then, of course, we could also believe that God could make a miraculous call and and give a supernatural spiritual blessing to a child. Um, At what point exactly... uh, Will they be regenerate? We don't know. Um, mm-hmm. However, we could say that as we look around uh, a child's family, uh, as we see as we see in the scriptures what his covenant promises are, um, then we can we can do this practice of pedo baptism, uh, baptizing infants, based on looking at all these factors, not just blindly ever. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But uh, I think that does lead into maybe a, a conclusive statement that we want to make at the end and say that Pado-Baptists do teach that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. Amen. And, and it can be a frequent accusation of Credo-Baptists towards those of us who baptize infants that, hmm. well... Uh, you don't really believe in salvation by grace through faith. It can seem like we believe in salvation through baptism or baptismal regeneration, which we don't, Mm -hmm. um, but we hold strongly to salvation being by grace through faith. We pray and hope that each child who is baptized in our church will be born again. They aren't necessarily born again at the moment of their baptism, but we pray that they will be, and we even baptize them in confidence that the Lord will um, show his favor and uh, fill and indwell them with his saving Holy Spirit. Yeah, so we can baptize babies not really feeling awkward about it, not feeling Mm -hmm. like we Mm -hmm. have to apologize for doing it. We think for all of the above reasons, we can do it confidently uh, because we have a God we can trust, a God who makes 
covenantal promises to his people and engrafts them graciously. Mm-hmm. And so we don't have to worry, I don't think, about it. This doesn't mean we should be overly triumphant and uh, thinking that we're we're the best because we hold to this <laughs> position and other people are much lower yeah, than us. Which was a big problem in the Reformation era. Yeah. yeah. But we can do so knowing that there's good reasons we, we believe what we do. And so we hope that this has been helpful for you as yeah. well as you've listened to it. Uh, maybe it hasn't exactly convinced you, but I hope that it has at least expanded your horizons a little bit so that you yeah. can see that there are some pretty good biblical reasons for why Christians uh, practice uh, the sacrament of infant baptism. Uh, yeah, so. and well, maybe in just just in sum, uh, what do we believe is happening at a baptism? I think it is, hmm. if we want to leave people with that uh, little description, um, I, I, when I'm baptizing a child, um, will hmm. be saying things like, baptism is an outward sign that God's Spirit is upon this child, and that God is blessing this child in this moment through um, through his spirit's uh, presence in his or her life. Uh, this child is going to learn the gospel. This child is set apart from the children of unbelievers. Um, this child is going to be blessed by God's word through his or her life. They will grow up in the fellowship of God's covenant family and all of those things are being signed and sealed through yeah. the sacrament right now. Yeah, that's important um, language that I was going to say. Yeah. Things are being signed and sealed. Yeah, and and that doesn't necessarily, again, mean that a child <laughs> is born again, yeah. is regenerate, is going to heaven. Um, I've known people who thought that of their own baptism, and so they would they don't give a rip about church or reading the Word of God or following Christ because they said, I was baptized, I got my ticket to heaven. I literally heard a coworker say that once. Oh, boy. <laughs> and, um, and that is, of course, not what we believe about baptism, yeah. but that it is a real spiritual blessing for this child who is receiving the sacrament, and we, we pray that the child will come to faith and will have full assurance of his or her salvation mm-hmm. all throughout his or her life. Yeah, to summarize that even, a professor in seminary once said, the sacraments are like checks God signs and gives to us. Mm. And so it's he is giving us money in the illustration. Mm-hmm. We have to receive them by faith. We have to sign the check and cash mm. it. Mm. And I think that that's, that's what's happening in, in, in baptism. Yeah, and he enables us to sign it and cash it through yeah. the working of his spirit. Yeah. Um, and so, again, it's a wonderful blessing that we have this gift of baptism, and um, hopefully, just as Zach has said, this will give those who practice this a little bit more a solid foundation for uh, mm-hmm. believing that we should continue to do so. So uh, we would love to hear feedback, and uh, you can get a hold sure. of us, I'm sure, through social media, or uh, this, actually, this topic was even suggested by one of Pastor Zach's friends mm-hmm. who... Um, is wondering about the topic himself. And so if you have another topic you would love us for us to cover, uh, or if you want to give feedback to this talk that we've given, uh, reach out probably through our, our church's social media would be the best place to do that. And uh, until next time, though, thank you for listening, and uh, God bless you. Yep, see you guys.